Amazing. Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning. Um, as Tim said, uh, I've come from Kent. I'm one of the pastors at a church called New Community Church down um, in a little place called Sidcup. If you've never heard of it, don't worry. You have no real reason to have ever heard of it before. Um, but I love the people there. I love being part of a community. Um, I grew up in a town called Western Supermare. Anyone been to Western Supermare before? Anyone know it? Two of you traveled down there, go for a ride on the donkeys and out on the pier and all that. Well, that's where I grew up, and um, then I spent some years in Nottingham where I met Tim, and I still have scars on my ankles from where he studied me multiple times, and still not fully over it, but getting there gradually through all the counseling I've had, and um, yeah, it's been, been uh, great to kind of see the journey he's been on, and to now be with the church family that he's told me so much about, um, yeah, real privilege to be here with you today. And uh, this would normally be the part of the sermon where I would tell you about my beautiful wife and my lovely kids and our Labrador, um, but I don't have any of those things, not even a dog. I've uh, never been married, I don't have any kids, and I don't have a dog either. And uh, that's not how I thought or expected my life was uh, going to look. I don't know about you, uh, when I was a kid, I started planning out what my life was going to look like and what years the different things were going to happen. Did you ever do that? So I decided that I don't want to be one of those people who needs to be married young. I'm, I'm happy to wait until I'm 29. That was the time I thought 29 is the age I'm going to get married. And then I, I can live a lot of life before then and then settle down a little bit. And that was how I, I pictured my life going. And now I'm 32. And if you're observant from looking at my left hand, there's still no ring on my ring finger. And it hasn't gone exactly how I expected it as a kid. And I'm passionate about this topic of singleness. And from my experience, having been in church my whole life, it's something I've rarely heard a sermon on. In fact, in churches I've been in, I've never actually heard a sermon on this topic. And that's why I love that your church has invited me to come and speak on this as part of the Made for Love series. Because it's such an important topic, yet we as Christians, for some reason, maybe find it too awkward or maybe not important enough to address so just for full disclosure, I am currently dating. This is kind of a new thing for me, having spent most of my adult life single. More recently, I have started dating someone. It's still taken me a while to get my head around. But what I would say is being in a relationship has, if anything, com confirmed my beliefs about singleness, as well as made me just as uh, passionate as ever before to preach on it. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at today, this whole idea of singleness. And all of us will have opinions or beliefs on singleness. When you heard that it was going to be the topic of the, uh, the meeting this morning, maybe you had set feelings. Maybe some of it was, uh, I, I don't really know if that relates to me, or I can't wait to hear this, or what's he going to say about singleness? And all of us will have uh, views on singleness and marriage and relationships and sex that are shaped by the voices around us and the experience we have. Each of us has had experiences that will shape us, both from our culture, and if you're a Christian, by church as well, and the Christians that you're around. So what does culture say? Have you noticed how our culture is constantly screaming at you that you need to be in a romantic relationship? You need to be having sex. That is the message, that is the mantra of our culture. We're obsessed with it. What was the most popular TV show this summer? Love Island. Love Island. If you haven't seen it, 
I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a, a show, but it's, people love it. I have lots of friends who are really into it, watch it religiously every night of the summer, and it's all about finding, in theory, love. It's more really about lots of attractive people walking around in their swimsuits, but the whole idea is here's these people trying to find love on this island. And it's not just TV, it's every part of media, even books. What was one of the top-selling books of the past few years? Fifty Shades of Grey. And this isn't read, read, just read by, you know, kind of teenage boys who are a bit curious. Who is the most popular audience for Fifty Shades? Middle-aged women. So this isn't just a kind of young man's thing. This is something that each of us is thinking about and wrestling through and has thoughts and opinions on. TV. What was, the genera- what was the TV show that shaped my generation who grew up in the 90s and made a massive comeback now on Netflix? Friends. There has literally never been another show like Friends in terms of the amount it's been viewed and the amount in which it shaped a generation. And what was the classic conversation in Friends? I, I, I grew up in quite a sort of sheltered Christian home, and so Friends was evil and I never watched it. But then when I got a bit older, I was like, I want to watch this show that had such a big impact. So I ended up binge-watching it over a few months. And it was fascinating to see the kind of messages that come through it. And one of the common conversations I was really surprised to see was this. They would say to one another, when was the last time you had sex? And Chandler might say, it's been been three months. And they're like, three months? You haven't had sex for three months. No wonder you're going crazy. Wow, three months. There's a film called 40 Days and 40 Nights. And the whole premise of it is, can this one man survive 40 days and 40 nights without sex? That's the mantra. That is the message of our culture. Whether you realize it or not, that is the the message that has been screamed at you every day. You need to be in a romantic relationship. You need to be having sex if you're going to feel complete, if you're going to feel whole, if you're going to be satisfied and safe. So that's culture. What about church? Well, in my experience, I would say churches have a really high value on marriage, a really high value on marriage. And I think what's happened is we've seen our culture reject the idea of marriage. Ever since the 60s with the sexual revolution, what was taken as a given has now been increasingly rejected. And that's something that we've rightly wanted to speak out against, the importance of uh, marriage and commitment. It's really important. We see many sermons. I've been in many church sermons on marriage. Our church, like many churches, runs a marriage course trying to strengthen marriages, and that's great. But I think we need to be honest, because we can talk about the messages of culture, but are they actually that different from our churches? See, our culture is screaming, you need to find love. And our churches are effectively saying the same thing, but just make sure you get married. Is it all that different? See, I think if we're being honest, in our desire to defend and commend marriage, as Christians, we've idolized it. What I've experienced and what I've seen from having been involved in very uh, uh, varied different uh, church circles is that we have the same obsession as culture. And we see this in the idolizing of marriage and the actions of singles. Single people who are 
desperate, desperately longing to be in a relationship, constantly thinking about it and talking about it. It's the thing that's always on their mind. For some, the longing becomes so strong that the desire to give everything to God, the desire to live for him and run hard for him, eventually gets overtaken by the desire to be in a relationship. And for many Christians, that can lead to them starting to date someone who doesn't have the same faith in God and isn't running in the same direction spiritually. We also see the idolizing of marriage in the actions of married people as well. The kind of things that married people can say to singles. Here's a few that I've heard in recent months and years that you may have heard too and may have said yourself. And I just encourage you, as I'm reading them out, think about the message that's communicated about marriage, about singleness behind each one. So here are some things that I've heard married people say to me. When are you going to finally find someone? Here's another one. Heard this at a Christian leaders conference. Behind every great man is a great woman. I don't understand. You're too nice to be single. What does that communicate? Don't worry. There's someone for you. And one that was said to me two weeks ago, someone said to me at church, uh, I just wanted to tell you that God's encouraged me to tell you that you can't go any further in your ministry until you're married, if you want to go to the next level. Now, that's a common belief. That isn't just a one-off thing that I've heard. It's something I've heard many times, which is interesting when you think about the marital status of some of the Christian leaders throughout church history. There's someone you might have heard of called the Apostle Paul, who is a single church leader. And then another unmarried leader you might have heard of too called Jesus. Yet it's still a commonly held belief that you need to be married if you're going to be a successful Christian, if you're going to be effective in ministry. See, we idolize marriage. But the problem when you idolize anything is that what you idolize, you eventually demonize. What does that mean? Well, when you take a good thing like marriage and make it a God thing, you say, this, if I just had that, if I just was married, then I'd be happy, then I'd be safe, then I'd be content. When you make something a God, when you make it an idol, eventually what you find is that that thing can't satisfy. So if I just get married, I'll never be lonely again. If I just get married, I'll never feel insecure again. Well, then you experience marriage. And it doesn't live up to those expectations and hopes. And so that thing that you once idolized and said, if only I had that, you eventually demonize it because it's disappointed you. It's the problem with idolatry. Whenever we make something out to be a God, other than God, it can only disappoint. There's only one that can truly satisfy. There's only one that can truly bring you the wholeness and healing you crave. And it won't be a spouse. So if our culture makes an idol of marriage, and if we're honest, our church cultures can too, what does God, the one who created all humanity, the one who created marriage, what does he say about singleness? Well, let me ask you this. What does God want most for us? This is 
will for all of us to be single, is his will for all of us to be married. Which is more valuable? Which is the gift from God? Is it marriage or singleness? It's both. Both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Both marriage and singleness are beautiful, and they're beautiful for the same reason. They both show the gospel. They both display the good news of Jesus Christ. Sam Albury, the author of a book called The Seven Myths of Singleness, which I'd really recommend to you, whether you're married or single, it's an excellent book. He says this, marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel, and singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. Firstly, marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel. Now, you've been looking at the theme of marriage in recent weeks, so you'll know that marriage, at its best, is supposed to reflect Christ's love for us, his church. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So marriage is the shape of the gospel. A healthy and loving marriage is supposed to be that self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love for the other. And that is a picture of how Jesus feels for us, his bride, the church. So marriage is a picture of the shape of the gospel. But singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, the world around us is screaming, you need to be in a relationship. You need to be having sex. If you're going to be happy, if you're going to be content. And in the context of that blaring message, your life as a single man or woman who's living joyful and content in Christ, your life shouts the powerful proclamation that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. He is what we need. You can know satisfaction. You can know fulfillment. You can know contentment in Jesus and in the family he gives. You can know all the joy and happiness and fulfillment that the world says can only be obtained if you're in a relationship with a husband or wife, a man or a woman. But Jesus says, I am all you need. And that is the message that you as a single person can send to the watching world. Last year, I was meeting up with someone, and I'd been sharing my faith with him, and he was kind of trying to, I, you might have had one of these conversations where someone's kind of wrestling with, I think I want to become a Christian, but then I have all these list of things that I just think are too much. And we kind of got to the crunch point where he was trying to make the decision. And I've been trying kind of everything, my own stories and different things to try and say, look, Jesus is real and he's worth following. But my friend wasn't really budging and we kind of reached the end of the conversation and, and he got a bit angry and he said, so I just want to confirm, John, you're telling me if I become a Christian, because I am thinking about it, but what I've realized is you're telling me if I become a Christian, I'm not supposed to have sex for the rest of my life unless I get married. He's like, that is crazy. You're telling me that's how you're supposed to live. And I said, well, the truth is, that's how I've lived. And that's how I plan to live for the rest of my life, whether I get married or until the day I die. He couldn't believe it. 
He was in absolute shock. He thought, well, that was kind of what the Bible says, but who can actually live that these days? And of all the things I said and all the kind of things, the clever things I tried to share and whatever to, to make him really believe that Jesus is real and worth following. It was me talking about Jesus being worth even laying down the thing that our culture values most. If I was willing to lay that down, then he began to think that maybe Jesus is real. Godly singleness sends a powerful message. So what does God's view of marriage and singleness lead us to? Well, two things. Firstly, it leads us to embrace the season we're in. Embrace the season you're in. So many singles are waiting for life to start. Waiting to get into a relationship before life begins. In my own life, I've wasted far too many minutes and hours and days and weeks thinking about when will it happen? When will it happen? What will it be like when it happens? Focusing, in, focusing on what I don't have rather than what I do have. Now, we're all very aware of the blessings of marriage. But how often do we talk about the blessings of singleness? Let's be honest. How often do we discuss that? Because the Bible does. The Bible discusses those things. And perhaps if we did too, we wouldn't devalue and detest singleness so much. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious, concerned about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay a restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. A wife and a family, a husband in a family, rightly take up a lot of attention. That's a good thing. If they don't, then there's a problem. It's important that they take up your attention, your energy, and emotions. And so what Paul is saying is, as a single person, you have a unique opportunity to use your time, your energy, and emotion to invest them in the things of God. And that's a wonderful gift. That's an amazing gift. I, I heard someone called Mike Pilavachi once talk on this. Mike Pilavachi is uh, the person who started Soul Survivor, this huge youth movement. He's a church called Soul Survivor in Watford. Had an impact on many, many lives around the globe. And he explained that he wouldn't have been able to do half the things that he's been able to do in his ministry had he been married. In fact, he said that it would have been sinful for him to do the things he had done because he would have had to have neglected his family in the process. And so the message that Paul is giving to us is embrace the season you're in. Focus on what you do have, not what you don't have. Don't waste your life just thinking, oh, I wish I had this. I, I wish I had that. Instead, embrace what God has for you today. 
Now, let me be clear, in case you're uh, thinking, I I don't feel this or know this myself, singleness isn't a walk in the park. I know there'll be people here who know the pain of singleness all too well. There'll be times where you'll see kids running around. Like this morning, I was with the Murrays, and well, to be honest, I wouldn't say I necessarily felt, I want this every Sunday morning. It was a little bit stressful. (laughs) But there's times, to be honest, you're playing with the kids, and I'm playing with Joel, and I'm like, oh. Oh, man, I'd love to have kids. And there'll be days when, let's be honest again, you're feeling aroused. You think, I just like to have some sex. There'll be moments you'll see, uh, there'll be moments where you see pictures. Maybe on Facebook, just something pops up, a picture of someone that you were really into. And you thought, oh, if only they liked me back. And the pain of the rejection will start flooding in. There'll be the couple's nights that you don't get invited to. There'll be the social times where it just feels like everyone's talking about weddings or about their kids or their kids' school or making comments about, oh, singles have it so easy. And all of those things can hurt. They can hurt deeply. And some of you in the room will know the pain of that. But it's important to remember, singleness can have many blessings. And when you focus on what you do have rather than what you don't, it can make the pain of singleness far easier. So let me say it again. If you're single, don't live in limbo. Embrace the season you're in. And you know what? That's a message for all of us. Embrace the season you're in. Because it's not just singles thinking about, oh, I want to be married. How easy is it for married people to say, well, life will really begin when we have kids. When we have the kids, then it's like life will truly begin and we can start the rest of our lives. Or parents with kids and it's just like, man, these mornings are crazy with the madness of all the kids running around in. Life will really begin when the kids go to school. Then life will begin. Then we can start properly. And then it's like, well, when the kids leave home and go to university, then life can start. Then life can really start. And then it's like, well, when when my health improves, when that operation comes, when that thing is fixed, then life will begin. When I retire, then life will really begin. And we can live in that mindset focused on what's next and what might happen rather than taking hold of what God has for us today. It's a message for each and every one of us. Embrace the season you're in. Secondly, embrace the family you're in. Now, this is something we uh, recorded a podcast last night, myself and Tim. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in exploring this topic a bit more, do listen to the podcast. And this is something I repeated several times on the podcast. And I'm going to say it again here so it's loud and clear. We don't need sex. We don't need marriage. It's not a need. It is not a need. We do not need sex or marriage. It's not like food or water. If you go 40 days without it, you're not going to faint and die. I'm 32 and I've never had either and I'm still standing somehow. It's possible. It's possible. And you know what? Jesus never had either. And he was the complete human being. So let me say it loud and clear one more time. We do not need sex or marriage. What we need is intimacy. 
That's what we need. Intimacy. It's why you can be married and still desperately lonely. It's why some of the most sexually active people are some of the loneliest. What we need, what we want at our deepest, at our deepest part, is intimacy. To know others and to be known by others. That's what's at the heart of humanity. That's what's in our DNA. And I mean that genuinely in our DNA. See, when God made Adam, if you read right at the beginning of the Bible, the story of creation, when God made Adam, it said that they walked in the garden together, the garden of Eden. Can you imagine that, just walking with God in this perfect universe, no sin to spoil it? I mean, the kind of relationship Adam had with God, we can only dream of this side of heaven. You know, what's really interesting, the first kind of negative thing that we read about in the creation story, what does God say about Adam? It is not good for man to be alone. And you think, what? I thought, oh, you know, all, all I need is me and God. Like, I don't, that's, all, that's all this is about, just me and God. What, what do you mean it's not good for man to be alone? He's got God. Yet God in his wisdom has designed us as human beings to need human community. God, in fact, in this sense, isn't all you need. He gives us all we need, but actually what we need is human intimacy. And so what does God do? He creates Eve. He gives him a helper, a wife, a companion, and also the ability to create more community. Now, I think one thing we've done as Christians that's a real shame is we've kind of reduced that Genesis story to just basically say what all of us need is to get married. Adam was lonely. Here's the solution. God gives him a wife. There we go. Jobs are good in. But it falls so short of what God is trying to communicate through the Genesis narrative. See, yes, a wife, a partner, a spouse is a great way to know other people and to develop intimacy. But that is just one expression. It was never meant to be our sole experience of intimacy. Community, being in relationship with multiple people, is at the heart of, Christian, of the Christian faith. It's central. If you open your Bible, if you turn to the, uh, any page, you're going to find verses talking about the people of God, the kingdom of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, all these corporate images of how we're needed together as a unit. And you look at Jesus' life. He did everything in community. He could have been like, you know, it's hard work. I'm with people all the time. Like, I'll kind of have my office away from everyone. And from time to time, I'll dip in and out for a, a quick sermon. Now, he lived with these 12 guys. I live with two guys, and it's hard enough work sometimes. But Jesus lived in community. Even the Son of God was aware of how much community is needed. If you read the New Testament, you'll see a phrase coming up time and time again. One another. One another, love one another, greet one another with a holy kiss, forgive one another, be gracious to one another. That phrase comes up a hundred times in the New Testament. Jesus is trying to make it so clear that we need one another. And let me say something controversial, but so important. If you think that two hours or 90 minutes on a Sunday morning is Christian community, 
you've completely missed the Christian faith. Coming to church every Sunday is so important. Something I preach about at our church all the time. Be here. Be here. Speak to people. Don't rush off after. Chat to people afterwards. But if that all is all that Christian community is to you, you have completely missed the beautiful picture that God has for us of living life in community, knowing intimacy with one another. So much more than just a Sunday morning. On your website, this is the phrase you see as soon as you click onto it. We are a community of God's people seeking to love him first and love our neighbors. In that one sentence, you've got community, love, and neighbors. So this is the core vision of your church. This is at the heart of what you're saying you're about. Is that what people experience when they come to the church? See, this is more important than ever. In 2014, a survey was done of all of Europe. They were trying to find out which nation is the loneliest of every nation in Europe. Do you know which nation was found to be the loneliest in the whole of our continent? The United Kingdom. We are the loneliest nation in the whole of Europe. The least likely to have close friends and to know our neighbors. It's got so bad that you might have heard this in the news that last year a loneliness minister was appointed in government. That's how bad it's got in our country. We are desperately lonely And we're supposed to be the most connected we've ever been, yet a craving community more than ever. Each of us needs community. Community is based on friendship. Friendship. Now, when you hear friendship, you might think, that sounds a little bit dull to me. It's not the kind of thing that we have in the top 40 charts right now with songs about. It's a bit like, friends, yeah, that's cool. It's not all that exciting. And C.S. Lewis, even in his generation decades ago, he recognized this himself. He said this, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and family, a man needs a few friends It's something quite marginal, on the sides, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks in one's time, keeps you busy, gives you something to do. How has this come about? How has this situation arisen? And I think part of the problem is that for many of us in our understanding of friendship, friendship has become almost like the waiting room for marriage. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like... I'll have some friends, but then if I'm one of the lucky ones who gets married, then I can kind of leave that season of life behind. It's why you see time and time again where people who are single get into a relationship, and with a matter of months, it's like, best friends, hardly talk to them anymore. It's why so many married couples have so few genuinely close friends. And of my 32 years, I've been single for 31 of them. It's not always been easy. But do you know how I found it so manageable? By fighting for friendship. That's how I fought off the loneliness. 
That's how I've kept it at bay, by passionately investing in friends. I've hosted more dinners than I can remember. I've organized holidays. I've had drinks and coffees with countless people. I've replied to messages from my friends rather than just ghosting them and leaving it. I've written cards and checks. I've confessed sins to friends. I've forgiven those who've hurt me deeply. I've had to work hard for it. And it hasn't always been easy. Even this week, crying over some friendship situations. I've worked hard for it. And despite all the pain, it's been worth it. It's paid off. Friendship is worth the fight. I love my community. I love my friends. I love being in a church family. You know, all of 2018, I could count on one hand the number of nights I had on my own as a single guy, just constantly having people in the church family who are wanting to hang out, go for meals, invite me over. I can count literally, I'm not exaggerating, on one hand the number of nights I spent on my own. That's not the picture of loneliness that we're supposed to think about with singleness, is it? But let me be clear, that didn't happen by accident. You have to fight for friendship. You have to be intentional and committal. It's like people come to my church and they say, oh, I just, I don't feel like I've made any friends here. And I say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. I was like, how have you found it when you've invited people over for food? And they say, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, did, did it go well when you had them over for dinner? And they thought, oh, I've, I've never invited anyone over for dinner. I say, oh, did you consider joining a small group? Like, how was it with people in your small group? And they're like, I just thought I'd be invited to one. I haven't actually ever been to one. I'm like, okay. What is it like when you served along other side people at church and kind of were chatting to them before the meeting? And like, oh, yeah, I haven't signed up to any of the serving teams. We need to fight for this. This doesn't happen by accident. And church is the best place to make friends, to genuinely get to know people. So get involved in church. If you're not on a serving team, serve alongside people. Even if it's just making teas and coffees or putting out chairs with people, you're alongside your brothers and sisters and you get to know them more. Join a small group. Invite people over. Invite people over. And if you're thinking, you know, I, I, I'm a single person. There's always families here and I, I just don't really get invited over. Well, let me recommend something. I realized recently that it's like a military operation for some families to leave their house. When I was walking out the house this morning, it was like a minefield with Lego bricks and random toys everywhere. I was nervous. I was like, I, I can't handle this just yet. It's hard for families to get out sometimes. So you know what I've done at my church? I've said to some of the families that I'm friends with, how about I come around your house and I'll cook for you? I'll cook for you. I'm happy to do that. And they're like, oh, that feels a bit weird. I'm like, it would be a pleasure for me because actually I enjoy hanging out with kids. As much as the Lego bricks going into your feet is painful, apart from that, it's a good laugh. And the amazing thing about church is we're family. And so even though this morning was the first time I met Tim and Joe's kids, they're sat on my lap and we're playing with the, the toys and we're messing around and I got hit in the face with a sword and it was a little bit painful, but it was fun. And that's family. And see, the thing is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, I have more in common with Tim and Joe Murray and their family as brothers and sisters in Christ than my own flesh and blood who don't know Jesus. 
That is a picture of the family of God. We can have spiritual adoption. That means that you, I've never met you guys before, yet you are my brothers and sisters. This is my home. Let's live as family, not a club or a society or some organization. Let's treat one another as family members. Get involved in church. And secondly, get honest. Get honest. If you want to have intimacy, you have to have authenticity. If you want to know people and be known, you have to be vulnerable and honest. See, you're not in a real or intimate relationship with someone if you're not honest, open, or vulnerable. Because they're just in a relationship then with a shallow projection of who you are, not the real you. So if you're saying, I want to go deeper in my friendships here at church, then I could encourage, can I encourage you, be honest about what you're going through. Share your struggles. It might take a while before the other person reciprocates, but it starts with us, open up our hearts, open up our homes, and that's where intimacy begins. Can I invite the band up, please? The message is this, embrace what God has for you today. And if you're single, see it as a blessing. He's got unique plans for you. Whether you're single for the next few months, the next few years, or for the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. Where there'll be no more loneliness, no more disappointment. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye. A marriage will be no more apart from the marriage between Christ and us, his bride. Remember this. This is my parting thing for you singles. Remember that God doesn't undervalue singles. Don't ever see yourself as second class, incomplete, disqualified, or unworthy of love. And if you're ever tempted to do that, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus the one who lived as a single man in a cultural and religious backdrop that despised singleness even more than our own. Just to give you some context for that, the rabbis, the religious leaders at the time taught this. This is a quote. Any man who has no wife is no proper man. The man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. That was the message. And against that backdrop, Against that backdrop, Jesus came as someone who never married. And he chose Paul, a single man, to take his good news to the nations. And he's been using single married men and women in powerful ways ever since. The Bible honors marriage and it honors singleness. It's not about elevating one above the other. If we're going to see the gospel advance in our neighborhood, in our nation, and around the globe, we're going to need married men and women who model faithfulness and family to the watching world. And if we're going to see the gospel spread in our neighborhoods, our nations, and around the globe, we're going to need many single men and women who powerfully proclaim the message that Christ is enough. Can I invite you to stand? just want to give this as an opportunity to respond. 
And we're going to pray, and then we're going to go into a final song. And I know for some people here this morning, this is um, a very personal uh, topic, and you uh, can relate all too well with some of the, uh, the pains of singleness. But for each of us, whether you're single or married, all of us face disappointments in life. The plan you had of what your life would look like. And God's message you, to you this morning is, trust me, embrace what I have for you today. Take hold of the gifts I've given you now. And for all of us, whether you're married or single, young and old, this is a family. This is a family, brothers and sisters. And I just want to encourage you a question. If you're single, when was the last time you hung out with a married couple? And if you're in a family and a couple set up, I would ask you, when was the last time you had some singles around your house? Let's not just talk about this. Let's live it out as a family. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you value each and every person in this room. I thank you that whatever someone's relationship status is today, that Lord, you are so, so in love with them, Lord. I thank you that you're not disappointed, that you're not saying, come on, when are you finally going to get married? No, you have blessed people here with either the gift of singleness or marriage. I thank you that we can receive that blessing. We can embrace that blessing. And God, I pray for those who are really wrestling with the the pain of disappointment. Ask, wonderful counselor, would you come right now and bring your peace? Prince of peace, come right now. Flood every heart, every heart that's felt a twinge during this sermon, just being reminded of their own pain. We ask right now, wonderful counselor, Prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father, would you come right now in your grace and love and bring your peace bring your healing Lord God I ask that this church would genuinely be a family not just in word but in deed we ask that there would be no loneliness among the people we ask that there would be genuine community genuine intimacy for your glory and our good Amen. Amen.